Welcome to the Amber Shows. This is the reading of a piece of cake, Cupcake Brown. Uh, there are shells of memoirs about overcoming uh, the death of a parent, childhood abuse, rape, drug addiction, miscarriage, alcoholism, hustling, gang banging, near death injuries, drug dealing, prostitution, and homelessness. Cupcake Brown survived all these things before she'd even turned 20. And that's when things really got interesting. To give you a recap of last week, you know that Cup is now living with her great aunt and her four cousins that the great aunt is raising as well. The oldest boy, Fly, is a gang member with the Crips. And Cup has joined as well. She's been um, beaten and jumped in, as they call it. And um, she now has experienced uh, all types of drugs. Um, she's proven herself with the robbing and gangbanging. And she's found friendships. She's lost friendships. She's had boyfriends. She has a boyfriend. Um, she has two. She had two. A real good friend that Peaches, who was going uh, with her cousin Fly, but when they broke up. Peaches also broke up her friendship with Cup, and Cup was really hurt by that. Uh, now uh, she's experienced uh, two other friends that she really likes, Trish and Rabbit, and they've become tighter and tighter. Uh, Rabbit was going with uh, Fly also, and they broke up, but uh, Rabbit was a player too. She shook Fly off, it didn't bother her, and her friendship with Cup never missed a beat. In fact, they got closer. So here we go, a piece of cake. I also experienced the dark side of the love we shared as a set. I got so sad because I had to bury many homies who'd been killed. One was Bam. Bam was an OG who, when he wasn't in jail, he stayed shermed up. He smoked so much sherm that a lot of times he didn't know where he was or who he was. But when he wasn't shermed, he was a down motherfucker. Anyway, one night, Fly and I were coming from a party. We saw Bam lying on a bus stop bench across the street from a donut shop that had a giant donut as its sign. We tried to wake him up and couldn't, couldn't get him to go home because we knew lying around like that would only be trouble. But try as we might, we couldn't get Bam to move. In fact, he started fighting us, yelling at us to leave him the fuck alone. We tried for a while longer, pleading with Bam to come with us. He was confused, and he refused to budge. Fuck it, Fly finally said. He ain't moving. Come on, Cuzzo. Let's go. So we left Bam lying there, singing to a tune only he could hear. Several days later, they found Bam. He'd been beaten, shot, and even run over. Rumor was the LAPD did it. I wasn't surprised. The LAPD was known for gathering a few homies, taking them off somewhere, beating the shit out of them only to bring them back and toss them out from a car as a warning to the rest of us. We never bothered filing any complaints. Shit, we knew that complaining would never do any good. They were cops, the good guys, and we were thugs, the bad ones. Who would believe us? Anyway, the LAPD hated Bam because he was always talking shit to them. Take off that badge, he'd tell them, I'll whoop your ass. Rumor was that they'd had enough of his talking shit and decided to teach him a lesson. 
But another homie said it was the Rolling 60s, not the LAPD who'd done it. Still another said it was the N-Hoods. Whoever Bam's killer was, the cops certainly never found them. Killers of gangsters, hooligans, and thugs weren't very high on society's most wanted list. Fly's best friend, Lucky, was also killed. He'd been set up by his brother's girlfriend who, for a payoff, told the, six, the 60s where he lived. They beat him, shot him, and left his body lying at the side of his house for his mother to find. That was the first time I'd ever seen Fly cry. Two weeks later, the brother's girlfriend mysteriously ended up dead. There was just a few of several funerals I got to attend as a gangster. Funerals and deaths were a part of gangster life. I chalked it up to just part of the game. I was never really concerned about dying because I never thought it would, come, it would happen to me. I seriously believed I couldn't die. I figured the homies who had gotten killed ended up that way because they weren't down enough, fast enough, cool enough, tough enough. And the brainwashing helped. Gangsters convinced me that dying wasn't a bad thing. They used to say, gangsters don't die, they multiply. They convinced me that there was a special heaven just for gangsters. Gangster heaven. And no matter how many people were killed, robbed, or beat, if you were a gangster, you'd go to gangster heaven where all the other fallen homies were, and we'd all party forever. So I had no fear of dying and continued working on earning a rep for being a down gangster bitch, robbing, thieving, shooting, stabbing, fighting. I put in work to earn the respect and admiration of my homies. During this time, I'd been in many gangs and who rides. I got my ass whipped and whooped some ass. I got hurt and hurt others. All of my banging act activities were done while loaded. Most were done while in a blackout. I enjoyed even welcomed the blackouts because they allowed me to have no clue as to what I'd committed. However, the next day my homies would always be more than happy to inform me about everything I'd said or done. Every now and then my conscience would rise up and I'd begin to feel bad about the way I was living and the things we were doing. But then I'd get around the homies. Between their love, the booze, the drugs, and the blackouts, my conscience was shut down. Besides, there was no time for guilt. I was becoming a ghetto star. A ghetto star is someone who is really respected in the gang. They can fight, shoot, rob, steal, and have rep for many ruthless, callous, and down things. Several of the homies were already considered ghetto stars, like Fly, Sidewinder, Monster, Huckabee, Huckabuck, Crazy D, and numerous others. Several of the gangsters that had also earned the coveted title, like Peanut, Big Lynn, Mooney, Crip, Karen, Yoki, and others, and I was on my way. I decided I wanted to die a ghetto star. That is, till those bullets hit my ass. I had been in South Central for over a year when Junior called to say that Mr. Burns had surfaced yet again. He called Junior, threatening to remove me from Becky's unless Junior gave him the life insurance money my mother had left us. How he even discovered where I was is still a mystery. Junior explained to Mr. Burns that even if he wanted to give Mr. Burns the money, he couldn't. The way my mama had the trust set up, no one could touch it but the children, and not till we turned 18. But Junior said he also made it clear to Mr. Burns that even if he would, even if he could give him the money, he wouldn't. 
My mama had left that money for me and Larry, and Junior knew that if Mr. Burns ever got his hands on it, there'd be nothing left for us. Well then, I'm going to get my daughter, Mr. Burns snapped. He said he'd bring legal action to have his child returned to him. And you know I'll win, he gloated. I'm the biological parent, remember? He told Junior to be expecting a legal representative to come and get me in a few days. Before Junior could respond, he'd slam the phone down. Now why he want to fuck with me? I asked myself. I personally hadn't seen or spoken to Mr. Burns since the day he gave us to Diane. And even after Aunt Becky had the mailing address for my social security checks changed so that they were sent to her address, neither Mr. Burns or Diane contested or even made a peep. Though later I learned that during my entire time in South Central, Diane continued to collect foster care payments for me. I wasn't physically afraid of Diane anymore. I knew how to fight and banging, beating up others, and getting beat had had given me heart. So I knew that if she acted like she was going to put her hands on me, I'd kick her ass. But still, I didn't want to be bothered with her, her crazy-ass daughter, and insanity that was constantly present in their house. So we told Aunt Becky that I was running to Lancaster, but in truth, I ran away. I didn't run far. I kept my clothes in Crip Karen's backyard, and at night I slept at different homies' houses. Though I spent most of the time at Trish and Rabbit's or at Hoover Rick's, who'd sneak me into his room after his mom went to sleep, I actually preferred this lifestyle living from pillar to post. Complete freedom. I loved being free. Fly would keep up with me where I was and check on me from time to time. But the good thing about being in a gang was it was that, like having lots of brothers and sisters. So if Fly wasn't checking on me, Dobe was, Huck was, or one of my other homies was. My 16th birthday was coming up, so I decided to celebrate. Trish, Egg, Hoover, Rick, Rabbit, Jeffrey, Grape, Crip Jr., B-Killer, Insane, and I were all hanging out in front of Rick's house. We had a couple of 40s and a fifth of gin, rum, and vodka. Hoover Rick had copped some weed. That was the bomb. It was a very informal party. The girls were sitting on a car that was parked at the curb while the fellas stood around us. We were just all drinking and smoking and laughing and talking shit and having a good old time. Rick's nephew, Timmy, was running around, play boxing with the homies, screaming, Hoover, and tossing up three fingers. He was only seven and had trouble holding up four fingers. So although he'd hold up three, the sign for gangster, he'd hoo-bang Hoover. He was so little and cute. Later that evening, Fly and Huck came up came by to check on me. They said they were on their way to ride on some slobs. Fly took me. He didn't like me. Fly told me he didn't like me living in the streets like this. I responded that I had no other choice. He shrugged as if he understood. Then he did something he'd never done before. He reached into his pocket and took out a $20 bill. Happy early birthday, cuzzo, he said as he slipped the money into my hand. He bent over, kissed me on the cheek, and told me to be careful. Then he quickly turned turned around and started walking away. I don't know if it was because he was in a hurry or because he didn't want me to see him getting mushy. Then, Huck stepped up and gave me a big old bear hug. He finally let me go, rubbed the top of my head. I hate it when he did that. And told me to stay down. I took off, running behind Fly. Man, I loved being loved. Timmy's mother came outside and made him go in. He didn't want to. He screamed and cried and begged her to let him stay with the big homies. 
five more minutes. But it was after 7 p.m. and she wanted to give him a bath, so she insisted he go in. The girls all took turns kissing him while the boys slapped him five and told him to stay down. He tried to push us away, murmuring a yuck as if he didn't like to be kissed. But we knew he loved it. And he tried to look menacingly to the fellows to show he was down. Then he hoo-banged one last time before turning and running to the house. I love the feeling of family. Rabbit and I took the $20 I'd gotten from Fly, copped some lovely, and returned to Rick's, where we continued hanging out, smoking lovely, listening to music, and talking shit. We partied as the night went on, just enjoying life and each other, when a car slowly rolled up on us. We watched closely as the front and rear passenger window slid down. A nigga stuck his head out each window and started hoo-banging. Sixties! Rolling sixties! While throwing up their set. Of course we had to hoo-bang back. I hollered, gangsta! While the others shouted, Hoover! Seven-four! The sixties started cracking up laughing as they peeled off. Although they'd identified themselves as rolling 60s, I didn't recognize any of them. Who was that, Cuzzo, I asked. To no one in particular. That was No Neck and the twins, Egg said. Them niggas be back. He was looking down the street in the direction the car had gone. And we'll be ready for him when they do, he hollered as he turned and ran to the house. Moments later, he returned with a 12-gauge shotgun and a 45 Magnum. He gave the 45 to Insane while he began examining the, the gauge making sure it was loaded and ready. We stood there for a while, ready and waiting, but they didn't come back. This put us in an awkward situation. In South Central, a bunch of black kids couldn't be standing out in the open, especially with guns, because the popos, who got suspicious just by seeing more than two of us out in one spot together, would surely stop and search everybody. We had to make a judgment call whether or not to put the guns away. After about 20 minutes with still no sign of the 60s, we figured they weren't coming back, so Egg took the guns back into the house. The rest of us went on in with partying. I was sitting on a car parked in front of Rick's house, my back to the street. Rick was standing in front of me <clears throat> beside a large tree. We had begun discussing whether I should turn myself in and be returned to Lancaster or whether I should continue living from home to home. problem with the latter option was that I was running out of places to stay. Our discussion was turning into an argument as I tried to explain to Rick why Lancaster was not and would never be an option. A few minutes later, as Egg was coming back outside from taking in the guns, the 60s rounded the corner. By now, Rick and I were yelling and cursing at each other. All of my attention and energy was focused on trying to make Rick realize my hatred for Lancaster, so I was unprepared and completely taken off guard when I heard a rustling all around me. It was then I realized we were being revisited by the 60s. I saw the car slowly moving, seemingly inching by. Then I saw a barrel, ever so slowly, poke out of the front passenger window. Then I saw a flash. Actually, it looked more like a bunch of sparks, a sparkly firecracker. The array of sparks started off narrow and seemed to widen as they flew toward me. 
I felt a burning in my back on the right side. The force of the blast knocked me past Rick and into the tree beside him. No sooner had I screamed from the pain on my face smashing into the tree, I felt two more ferocious blows slam my back. It felt like someone with a huge heated hammer was whacking the shit out of my back with the force of a lumberjack. One hard whack, bam, and then another. Both blows caused my body to bend awkwardly as both of my arms flung helplessly in the air. I bounced off the tree and fell to the ground. At first, I didn't know what had happened. I thought I was on fire because my back was burning so badly. Then it hit me. I think I've been shot. So I started screaming, I'm shot, cuzzo, I'm shot. The group exploded in pandemonium. Trish started running up and down the middle of the street screaming, Cup's been shot. God damn it, motherfuckers, Cup's been shot. Rabbit wasn't running. She was standing over me and shouting from the top of her lungs, Oh Lord, no, oh Lord, no, over and over and over. The fellas, they were trying to get me to keep still. I was rolling from side to side, but never able completely to roll over. All I could think of was an elementary school safety tip. When on fire, stop, drop, and roll. I felt like I was on fire. I had already dropped, so hell, I was rolling. The burning was unbearable. My body was writhing in pain. As Rick, bending over me, tried to help the homies keep me still, drops of blood began to drip into my face. Shocked, the homies stopped wrestling with me and stared at Rick wondering where the blood was coming from. Egg was the first to realize what was happening. Hey, Cuzzo, you bleeding, he said. Rick looked down at himself. His entire shirt was soaked red. His pants were beginning to cling to his body from the release of the blood. He'd been shot and didn't even know it. But looking at the blood that now soaked the entire left side of his body, he knew it then and fainted. We lay there for what seemed like forever. I suddenly realized that I couldn't move my legs, but I wasn't sure if it was because of getting shot or because of the mayhem. Finally, one time, another name for the cops. At first, they didn't want to take us to the hospital. Why should we waste time trying to save these guys? The tall white cop asked the crowd of bangers who gathered around their fallen. My pain was intensifying. All y'all do is kill each other, the cop said. So what's the use? Since they'll probably be dead niggas in a year, he stated it so matter-of-factly, not like he was trying to be mean, just like he was stating reality. The pain increased. It was excruciating. I began to feel like I was going to pass out. Before going out, I heard Egg snap. What the fuck you say? I wanted to lift my head up and say, he said we're worthless, but the pain was too great. So like Rick, I passed out. I awoke in the ambulance. Rick was still out. Where are we going? I asked the white guy who was bending over me and taking my blood pressure. To the hospital, he snapped as if I were bothering him. Although my back was still on fire, I noticed that I didn't hear any sirens. So I asked the ambulance guy why there were no sirens on. Isn't this an emergency, I asked. Yeah, he snarled, seemingly angrier than before. It's just that it's soundproof in here. Excuse me. Oh, I said, accepting his explanation. Years later, a medic told me that those things aren't really soundproof. They didn't have the siren on. We were taken to Morningside Hospital, the only hospital in the hood. 
Morningside wasn't like a nice upper-class hospital where the doctor comes out to talk to the family and calmly and quietly inform them of the patient's condition and possibly form of treatment. My interaction with the doctor went like this. He came into my room, looked at me with disgust, and said, You've been shot in what looks like like two guns. X-rays show bullets lodged in between your vertebrae. He paused and looked at me as if it was time if, as if it was time for a question, which was a good thing because I had one. So what does that mean? You may not walk again. He turned and walked out the room, making it clear that there'd been that there would be no more questions. I might not walk again, I screamed after him. I might not walk again. What the fuck do you mean I might not walk again? But my screaming was in vain. He'd gone. I tried to move my legs, but I couldn't. Was he right? Or was it just another one of those sherm trips I was on? I lay there sobbing alone. It was then I realized my homies weren't anywhere around. There was no one to help me. No one to call him out. What about God? That came from the inside of me. From something I called the voice. I'd heard this voice periodically. During my running away escapades, it would direct me with things like, don't get in that car, or don't go that way, go this way, or don't go to that party. I never really questioned who the speaker was or why I spoke, or why it spoke. I tossed it up as intuition. One thing was apparent though. Whenever I didn't listen to it, I regretted it. Would he listen to me, I asked myself in response to the voice's suggestion. Hell, I'd hated him since Mama died and had pretty much ignored him all this time. It wasn't like we were friends or anything. Maybe I could try to talk to him, ask him for a favor or two. I don't know if God's going to listen. I had a slight memory that there was a special way you had to talk to him. But what was that? I didn't know. Should I didn't know a single Bible verse? How was I going to get through to him? if I didn't know the proper way to do it. Fuck it, I told myself. Just ask him, hell. So I did. I looked up at the ceiling. I don't know why. I heard he lived in heaven and that heaven was up there. So I looked up and began to speak. Look here. I know you don't know me. It's not like we'd be kicking it or anything. But if you can hear me, I could really use some help down here. Now the tears began to fall. I ain't been the best person, but I suppose I ain't been the worst neither. Besides, most of the shit I've been in, you could have stopped. But that's neither here nor there. I didn't come to lay blame. Like I said before, I need some help. So here goes. Doctors say I may not walk again. And if I can't walk, I can't run. And if I can't run, I'd be stuck in Lancaster. And if you see me down here like they say you can, you know what life is like in Lancaster. Now I was sobbing, but through the snot running out my nose and the tears streaming down my face, I continued. If I'm ever stuck in Lancaster, I'll kill myself. I paused for a moment to cry and think about how to continue. Then I realized that nobody does something for nothing. Why would God be any different? I had to think of something to offer him. I thought for a moment longer, and then it came to me. I continued my conversation. Now don't get me wrong, I ain't the type to expect something for nothing, so I'll make you a deal. If you let me walk out of here, 
I'll quit banging. I swear. I swear I will. A nurse walked in, startling me. Who were you talking to, she asked. None of your fucking business is what I wanted to say, but as I got ready to open my mouth, I remembered that seconds ago, I'd made a deal with God, a deal he might renege on if I cussed someone out so quickly, so I kept quiet. The nurse seemed unaffected by my silence. I'm going to give you something for pain, she said. I wasn't in pain, but that wasn't important. I asked her what it was she was giving me. Morphine, she replied. I'd never heard of it before going into the hospital, but since I'd been there, they'd been giving it to me intimately, and I loved it. A few moments later, as I drifted off to sleep, I hoped that God would keep his end of the bargain and wondered how the fuck I was going to keep mine. Rick and I were the only ones shot that night. We each got hit by two guns, a sawed-off 12-gauge and a 22. I got nine pellets from the gauge and from the gauge and two two bullets from the 22 all of which hit me in the back rick got one bullet from the 22 and 30 pellets from the gauge and the gauge sprayed up and down the left side of his body the doctor said if it didn't make sense to operate on either of us he never explained why he did say that if rick stayed safe stable he could leave in a few days me well we'd have to wait and see During the next few days, the hospital was inundated with gangsters and hoovers visiting. To keep them from having to roam from room to room, we decided we should all hang in one room. I wasn't supposed to get out of the bed. I was never told why. So the homies would roll my bed, IV, pole, bottle, and all the accompanying gadgets into Rick's room. Or when the nurses began complaining about their moving me, they hung out in mine. But no matter whose room we were in, we got high. I couldn't feel my legs, but I didn't know if my paralysis was due to the gunshots, the numerous never-ending shots of painkillers, the hospital kept giving me all of the dope the homies kept bringing me, the homies brought plenty of liquor and lots of boo. They refused to bring me any sherm, though. They said they were waiting and watching for my health before I could smoke angel dust. The good thing was that between the hospital's pain drugs and the homies' street drugs, I stayed high and happy. Every day was like a party. But that party didn't last long. The other patients and nurses started complaining about the many visitors, the noise, and the continual smell of marijuana and alcohol coming from my room. So they limited my visitors to six a day. The the night after getting shot, Egg, Insane, and several 74 Hoovers rode on the 60s in retaliation for Rick. A few nights later, Fly Sodichi, pronounced Sodaki, Hunchy and Huck rode for me. Rumor had it that folks were killed during both rides, but none of those hit were the ones who shot us. That didn't matter though, as long as we got some of those motherfuckers, I was happy. A week or so after being in the hospital, I began to have feelings in my legs. The doctors called it a miracle. I couldn't tell if I was being fastidious or not. But there was no physical therapy, no exercising, nothing. The doctor said I didn't need any of that kind of stuff and that I should just be glad that my legs worked. I took his word for it. I was just happy that God seemed to be keeping his part of the bargain. Several days later, I turned 16. My homies helped me celebrate it by bringing in weed, booze, and cupcakes. 
ex-sneaked little Tommy in, who gave me a big hug and a cupcake. I'm so glad you didn't die, Cup, he said in his soft, small voice as he reached over the bed and gave me his hug. I could tell he was trying not to cry, trying to be hard like the older homies. He was only seven years old, and already he was learning how to hide fear and sadness. Me too, little cuz, I replied, trying just as hard to not let a tear fall. Our party was cut short when a social worker showed up to see me. I'd learned to distrust and dislike the people in her profession, so when she gave me her name, I didn't even bother remembering it. She didn't seem to care that she was crashing my birthday party. She casually told me that they were having trouble finding some place to put me, like that was supposed to be a big surprise. What was surprised is that someone, she didn't say who, thought it's best that I not remain in Los Angeles County. Diane was willing to take me and had room, so that's where I would have to go. At first, I started to protest, but then I remembered my part of the bargain with God. Could this be the way out? I knew I wouldn't be able to just walk away from the gangsters. I knew things. I'd seen things. I'd done things. But if I was taking away against my will, well then, it wouldn't be running out on the set. Now would it? When Fly came to see me the next day, I told him of the decision to return me to Lancaster. He said that though he knew how much I hated going back, he preferred that I do that rather than living from homie to homie or out in the streets. You think the homies will come after me, I asked, or get me for running out on the set? Girl, ain't nobody gonna fuck with you, he snapped. Not unless they come through. Not unless they come through me first. Besides, they know it ain't your choice, and it ain't like you're going to snitch or anything like that, right? Right? No, cuz. I don't know shit. I ain't seen shit, so I can't tell shit. We both started cracking up laughing. He stood there for a long time in silence. We both knew that our special relationship had come to an end. Damn, little cuz, he he stated sadly. Seems like yesterday you was just arriving, and soon you'll be leaving. He sat down as we began to reminisce about our time together. Remember that time I almost got hit by that car, he asked with a chuckle. I did. We'd been coming home from a party on our way. We ran into Diamond, and who told us that some of the homies had blasted on some pirates who were now riding through the hood in, the, in payback. We'd stopped at a phone booth, called the boys at home, and told them to take the customary action. When a rival gang was riding turn off all the lights, and get down on the floor. After making sure the boys knew what to do, Fly and I began to make our way home. Dodging behind trees and parked cars, staying away from street lights and running through red lights, not wasting any time waiting for the green ones. We were one block from the house. We started to dash across the middle of the street when a car came roaring around the corner. It was dark and we were dressed in all blue so the driver didn't see us. When he did, he was, uh, it was almost too late. He had to slam on his brakes to avoid hitting us. Seeing the car and hearing the screech fly who was in front of me by a few feet, struck out his arm as if to stop the car. Actually, he used his arm to help himself hop onto the hood as, as the car came at him. I stopped and screamed, just knowing that they killed him. The fly rolled over the hood and onto the ground, got up and shouted, Come on, cuz, as he began running again. again. Damn, he was fast. I stopped to look at the car, wondering if the occupants would emerge with shotguns to finish us off. But all I saw was a little black man and a woman. They were scared shitless. The man rolled down his, win- his window and nervously asked, Is he all right? 
Before I could respond, another car came speeding around the corner. Now that might be the bloods, I told myself. I couldn't take time to answer the old man. I had to get going. I took off from a far, from I took off after fly, leaving the old man sitting there still shaking. We'd never discussed that night until right now. That little old man was scared shitless, I said as we both cracked up laughing. We sat there for a while and continued reminiscing about how we fought together, who rode together, stolen together, and gotten high together. About how we'd sit up for hours during the night talking about our moms and how much we missed them. We both got sorrowfully quiet. Our silence was broken when, was broken when Rick came into the room to smoke a joint. Egg had left with him a joint. I told him that I'd be leaving soon. He looked sad, but said he understood. As we sat and smoked the joint, Rabbit and Trish came to see me. I again repeated the news that I was being forced to leave the county. We sat and cried for a while. Then we all reminisced about some of our greatest jacks, gang fights, and shootings. We remembered fallen homies, and we discussed which of the new little homies coming on the sets would be able to stay down enough to maintain the gang's rep. We tried to fool each other and say that it really wasn't goodbye. It was just so long, and we'd keep in touch. But I knew those were just words. Every time I was taken from people I loved, they'd never kept in touch. How could they? They didn't know how to get a hold of me. Hell, half the time, I didn't even know where I'd be. I'd long since learned that goodbye meant just that, goodbye. We laughed and joked until the nurse walked in and gave them nasty looks as she gave me a shot of pain medicine. She then told everyone they'd have to leave because visiting hours were over. Each of them gave me a long hug and said goodbye as they walked out. I tossed up Trey with my right hand and Crip with my left. With tears in my eyes, I looked up at the ceiling. I hope you're happy, I screamed. A deal's a deal, the quiet voice said. Yeah, it is, I replied in my mind. I rolled over and went to sleep. I'd need my rest. I'd soon be heading for Lancaster. Life in Lancaster hadn't changed much, except beatings had stopped for good. Diane's diabetes had slowed her down quite a bit. The doctor told her she had to lose weight, but she said her power was in her weight, so she wasn't going on no fucking diet. As a result, she was still extremely overweight and had to take insulin shots. But even in this state, she was just as mean as ever. Diane had stopped requiring the children to call her mama, said it got on her last good nerve. One of the other children told me Diane had screamed at them. Who'd want to be your fucked up ass mama? Don't call me that shit no more. Of course, now that I had no physical fear of Diane, I loved messing with her in any way and as often as I could. So as soon as I discovered she hated us calling her mama, that's what I called her. And knowing how she hated whining, I'd be sure to say it in the whiniest voice I could muster. I loved watching her cringe when I said it. Yep, the tables had turned in Lancaster. Connie's hot foots intimately continued except I never got them anymore. I told them bastards that I'd kill the first one that looked like they was fixing to put a match to anywhere near my feet. The other kids knew about my gang activities and getting shot and weren't looking to try me. That's all it took to stop Connie's attacks. She was a wimp without her cronies. I still had to watch my back around her though. She was the type to punch you from behind and run. I wasn't immediately returned to school. The doctors had told Diane that I should stay off my legs for a couple of weeks. 
Once leaving the hospital, I was never taken to another doctor for a checkup to see if the bullets and pellets had moved or anything. Life went on like the shooting had never happened. When I first got back to Lancaster, I periodically called Fly, Rabbit, and other homies, but Diane started who-banging about the phone bill, so I began to call less and less. It was quickly apparent that if I didn't call my homies, we didn't talk. No one called to see if I was okay in Lancaster, even though they knew how much I hated it there. Talk about out of sight, out of mind. So, Cup is back at Diane's. Can you guys believe it? Oh my goodness, the system, the system. It really failed her as a child. Well, thank you for coming to the Amber Shows. I will have another reading coming up, probably Sunday night or Monday night. Who knows? But I'm going to have another reading because we must know what's going to continue at Diane's. Can you believe it? Well, at least Diane can't beat them anymore. Okay, you guys. Have a wonderful night. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful and safe weekend. Don't forget, wear your mask. Distance. Coronavirus is still out there. We'll be back to read more of A Piece of Cake by Cupcake Brown real soon.